So John 15, if you have your Bibles or your phones, just turn to John 15, 1 through 8, a little bit of context. As I'm learning and being reinforced in Pastor David's hermeneutics class context, let's understand how and when this was written. Judas has already defected Jesus and the disciples. Now they're down from 12 disciples to 11. Jesus is encouraging 11 and trying to give them a clear worldview of how to interpret this, this crazy event of defection. And by the way, Jesus is just hours away from his death. Jesus is going to be arrested soon, tried and murdered shortly. And it's, it's, he's trying to help the disciples to be faithful, to be fruitful. And he uses a common imagery in Israel, the grapevine, to illustrate and teach a point here. And this is springtime, mind you. This is springtime, so the, the vines have just been pruned. They're clean. So Jesus, our Lord, uses a very familiar uh, 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 metaphor to help the disciples understand. So let's rise as we honor God by standing up for his word. John 15, 1 through 8. Jesus says, this is the words of our Lord on the Lord's day. I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And conversely, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide or remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone, does, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8, Finishing up here, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you help us understand what you're saying. Your word is good. Your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. A little bit of context as we're, as we're using vine imagery. Back in 2018, this Israel trip that I went on, I took a bunch of pictures, and in northern Israel, I came across this slab of stone, and it had a vine, grapes in it. This is very important as we understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the true vine. Israel in the Old Testament, a metaphor of the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament for Israel is the vine. In Psalm 80, verse 8, if you want to read it, he says, I plucked you, I removed a vine out of Egypt and planted it. Israel is the vine. Okay, so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's making a big statement there to the disciples. The, the 11 disciples were Jewish. And what does that mean? The Jews of the time saw their security, their identity, the hope of divine blessing in their connection to being Israelites, the seed of Abraham. If you want to get a little bit deeper reference in that, Matthew 3. Matthew 3, John the Baptist confronts the Pharisees and talks about, hey, you put your confidence in being the seed of Abraham. So Jesus is attacking this whole false sense of security 
caught up in the false vine of Israel. All right, so point number one, Jesus says, we're getting right to it, I am the true vine. Verse one says, I am the true vine. This I am is a massive statement, as some of us, many of us know, I am is a divine proclamation of sin. This is the seventh I am statement in the Bible in John. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm God. If you want to know God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm also the way. So Jesus, you can see, is like saying, disciples, I know what's near and dear to your heart. Disciples, I know it's going to get hard. And disciples, I'm trying to plug in the truth into where you feel it the most. Saying, you cannot trust in your identity as Israelites. So I think to myself, today, what are some of the things that we have attached ourselves to? I mean, many of us, you know, some of us may have come out of Buddhist backgrounds. So that's kind of, hey, no longer trust in Buddha. You're trusting in Jesus, right? That's a pretty easy connection there. Perhaps some of us are trusting just being a nice person. You know, people call that moralism. If I'm a nice person, God will let me into heaven. Some of us maybe have trusted in our achievements. If I could live in a certain neighborhood, if I, could, if I have a certain type of career, if I sit, get a certain type of degree, I'm significant. I'll, I'll matter. I'll matter. Maybe it's simple as I've been coming to church and attending church for years, and somehow God will open up the gates of heaven because of that. Perhaps. I don't know that. Perhaps it's about like, hey, I, I raised a good family. Therefore, that's a good thing. Therefore, I matter. And therefore, God, you'll let me into the kingdom. I'll be in good with God. I'm fulfilling what I'm supposed to be doing, my purpose in my life. Maybe those are some of those things. I don't know that. But Jesus is making a huge, he's just shattering that old paradigm, that old uh, security in, in Israel and saying, disciples, you trust in me, the true vine. Jesus is saying the same thing today. 2,000 years later, as we pull out this point, Jesus is still the true vine. <laughs> if you trusted in any of those things, and then, and then and even in my heart, there's definitely tension. Where's my identity? Is it in Christ or is it in other things? It's a constant, could be a constant tension, but Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. And in, ver- in the next portion of uh, verse 1, he goes, my f- and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. The father is a divine gardener. And the father's role, what is his role in this metaphor, this, this illustration? His job is to take care of the vine. His role is I'm going to take care of the vine. So I'm thinking to myself, man, this is a precious, precious vine. These are some precious, precious branches that the father is taking care of. So in my mind, I go like, okay, I start doing some research, and, and, and I, I found the most expensive fruit in the world. Guess where the most expensive fruit in the world can be purchased at. What country, I guess? And just think about it. It's Japan, okay? 11,000, you want to look at, see what $11,000 grapes look like? Here's $11,000 grapes here. The, and I'm not talking for the whole acreage. I'm talking uh, uh, this. Here you go, right? I mean, $11,000. There's some expensive grapes, and in Japan, the grapes are big. They said, and these are called red ruby Roman grapes, and you peel off the skin. You don't even eat the skin. 
You pay $11,000, you don't even eat the skin, you just eat the inside. But from what I hear, I don't think I'll ever get to <laughs> touch one of these, but they're the sweetest, the most special grapes ever, right? It better be for $11,000. <laughs> now, this Japanese gardener, I was studying a little bit about, you know, my dad's a gardener, so some of the, I kind of grew up with this. I'm not going to kid you, I don't know much about it. I was just more of the push lawnmower guy and the rake guy, quite frankly. I didn't have the expertise, and I just did it to be a good son, Right? as we all do stuff for our parents. But um, the Japanese gardener, what would we do? He would cultivate the ground. The soil has to be right. He would fertilize the soil, all right? He'd water the plant just enough, not too much, not too much. Got to be the right dryness and the right amount of water. And then he would put a, set up a trellis so, that, so the vine isn't just just on the ground, and there's air, and the sunshine is able to breathe properly. So there's a trellis set up. There's some structure tying the vine to a pole, perhaps. Even these grapes, they get this origami or paper-looking thing, and they, they start, once it's kind of developed, they wrap it around with some kind of paper. They cover it from unnecessary sunlight, bugs, the elements, all that. I mean, that's incredible care there. Right? The stakes are high for this vine dress. I mean, $11,000 per bundle. That's a big deal. Now, the father, he's the vine dresser, and his stakes are even higher. What he's taking care of is much more precious than grapes. So humans will go through painstaking things to make sure we raise up some good grapes. How much more will the father take care of the vine and the branches that bear fruit? Now, as I study this, as we take communion today, Think, my, my mind and my heart, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get off this Trinitarian love relationship. This has been in my bones. It's been, I've been thinking about this a lot. What, in, the, in essence, I'm starting to understand the gospel more, meaning we, the church, Evergreen SGV, and the church universally, every single brother and sister ever to exist, is put into a love relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're part of this forever. Right now we're part of this. And the Father loves the Son so much that He cares for the vine and He cares for the branches that, which are connected to the vine. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, right, to the Father. I'm just going to read some more verses from last week. I, I, this is uh, John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. There's oneness we're oneness with, with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with one another. Let's go to uh, John 14, 21, the next part, the second half. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself. And we're loved with the same type of love that the Son gets from the Father. That's love. John 14, 23, the second part. My Father will love him, and we will come to him, we, will come to him and make our, plural, our abode with him. There's unity, there's oneness, there's relationship there. This is what Christianity is about. Through Christ, we have oneness, unity, love from, with God and with one another. All right, this is what this is about. This is what this is about. Therefore, the Father cares for Jesus' body. We're his body. He's going to care for us and give us some divine gardening care. And, but there's two types of branches here. This is important. The vine dresser deals with two types of branches in John 15. 
Okay, in verse 8, it, it identifies branches as disciples. That these are Christians. This is not a confusing metaphor. The, the, our Lord explains what it is. Verse 8 says these are disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Let's define what a disciple is. Disciple is synonymous with Christian. Disciple is someone who's saved. You cannot be a Christian and, but not be a disciple. You, you're one, they're one and the same. There's no junior varsity Christian status and then varsity uh, Christian status as a disciple. You are a disciple. What is a disciple? It's a devoted follower, a dedicated learner of Christ. You follow Christ, you're learning more about Christ. And look at the two type of branches. One branch, fruitless branches represent false disciples. We're going to kind of take this apart a little bit to understand. Fruitful branches, meaning branches that produce fruit, are true disciples. Plain and simply. So there could be false disciples. That's not a Christian. That's an unsaved man or woman. And fruit is the key indicator between true and false. Do you have fruit in your life? So we're going to take some time to understand what is fruit. And this is how you know if you're a Christian. You have to understand this. We have to understand this. I mean, as, as, as I you know, read up on stories about the helicopter accident with Kobe Bryant, and I mean, you hear about this. I just want to share something with you, and perhaps this might explain kind of maybe why I am the way I am at times. Um, back in 2007, and some of us may have heard this story, I was at coaching at the University of Southern California. I forget how old I was, maybe my 30s, early 30s, maybe 30, 31, something like that. And uh, we're going to play my favorite game of the year, Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame. We're flying out to South Bend. I love that game, all right? And all I could think about is, oh, man, how, we got a game plan versus this. This is what they do, this. I'm, I'm consumed. I'm sitting in the back of the plane with the players as I normally have. And all of a sudden, I don't know, we're probably, I don't know, three quarters, almost, if not there, to Indiana, and all of a sudden, our plane drops hundreds of feet. I mean, this is, I've been in flights before, and I've been in turbulence, and I've been even small planes with turbulence, you know, flying through Fresno, recruiting, and things like that. But this is a big plane, and all of a sudden, we dropped. And the drop was so drastic that my friend who was sitting in front of me, my assistant coach, uh, Demetrius Martin, he, who, he had his, uh, his seatbelt on. The buckles were buckled down to the ground, bolted to the ground, broke, and I see him floating in the air. I see the back of his head hitting the uh, luggage compartment, overhead luggage compartment, and he's floating there for a second. And then all of a sudden, boom, he drops to the ground. I remember uh, putting, uh, picking, helping put, pick him up, get him to seat. And the, the, the wives are screaming on the plane. Um, this was the wives' trip every year. Coach Carroll would bring uh, the wives to one trip. And Notre Dame was often the big trip that they've come. Sharla, my wife, wasn't there because she was pregnant. The doctors didn't think that was a good idea. And I was thinking to myself, Oh, we're going to die. Because this is a little bit different from other, uh, other uh, turbulence that I felt. And I'm thinking to myself, I I'm not thinking about the game. I'm not thinking about Notre Dame. I'm not thinking about my job. I'm not thinking how about to stop the power or the power pass. I'm not thinking about any of that stuff anymore. I'm thinking, man, thank God I know you, Jesus, as my Lord. Amen. Second thought that came, I'm glad my kids will have a parent with them. All right. In that moment, what assurance would do you have? 
We're all going to be on the helicopter someday, whether it's a helicopter or not. Somehow we will face death. Death is a universal issue that we all have to deal with. 100% of, the, of us will deal with that. You need to know right now, do I have fruit so that I know in that day, that great day, you say, you know what? There's a lot of unknowns, but I have confidence I'm going to be with the Lord. Okay, so this is, why, this is how important this is. So my first question is, what is fruit? What is fruit? My mind oftentimes goes to fruit. Was like, you know, I do things, I preach, I, I like studying the Bible, I'm, I, I, I evangelize people, good things. I go to church, good things. But sometimes there could be a misconception of fruit. Sometimes we could tie fruit onto trees, you know, and, and act like that's fruit grown from the Spirit. That's just doing good things. We could do a lot of good things for all the wrong motives and still not be in the kingdom. We don't want to, the fruit is not judged on external metrics. I know we like to uh, to measure things and we're into the big metric thing, even in the world of sports, but fruit is not measured that way. As apple trees will produce what? Apples, right? Grapevines produce what? Grapes. The Spirit produced the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5. Galatians 5. This is, this is how you know you have fruit in your life. But the fruit, not fruits, but fruit, singular. Okay, there's one type of fruit with, with these type of characteristics. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Do you have Christ-like character? Are you starting to look more like Christ? Obviously not perfectly, me included, but are you resembling Christ? Are you on that trajectory of looking more like Christ as you grow and journey in your Christian walk? Fruit is Christ-likeness. It's your character. So disciples of Christ look like Christ. If you're a devoted follower of Christ, you start walking in the same direction as Christ. If you are a dedicated learner of Christ, you start thinking like Christ. You have the mind of Christ. I'm starting to act and look and smell and feel like Christ. This is fruit. This is fruit. So let me ask us a question. If that is the critical question, do I have fruit produced in my life? What is the goal of the Christian life? What is your goal? What is our goal? What does the Bible say is the goal of the Christian life? I have a slide here. The goal, so you could get some references, so I'm not going to go in depth on these, but the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Christ. These are verses that talk about this. Romans 8, uh, 29 says, God's plan is for us to be conformed to the image of his Son. We've been saved to become like his Son. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, God's will is for us to be sanctified, to become more like Christ. Colossians 1, 28 says, Paul strives to present every man, woman, child complete in Christ. Paul makes like a, a, a laborer, a mother who's in labor metaphor, like I labor for you, I strain and agonize over you, church in Galatia, until Christ is formed in you. To become like Christ is the goal. Everything else is not the goal. This is the, the mindset. Paul says, one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind and striving for to the upper call, goal of, in Christ Jesus, the goal is to become like Christ. 
We don't strive to be saved. It's a gift, but we strive and strain to become more like Christ. This is the goal of the Christian. And the father's care for the son is second to none. He loves the son. He loves the church. And since in order he, since he loves the son so much, there is a sense of urgency with the father. Just like anyone who grows any vines or any fruit, there's seasons for everything. Meaning if you don't prune and cut and remove stuff at the right time, meaning right now in the wintertime, come harvest, it's, it's going to be a poor harvest. So there's a, there's a timeliness to how the Father gardens. It's not when I, I'll get around to it whenever I can. Then there's a season. The Father takes drastic measures as this next point we'll talk about. Point number two Drastic measures, and he, he takes away fruitless branches. Verse 2 of John 15. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, what does he do? He takes away. He takes away. What does that mean? He takes away. In the NIV, yours may say, cut off. He gets a saw and cuts off the branch from the vine. No fruit. I'm going to cut that branch off. Now, and in verse 6, what does it say happens? If anyone does not abide in me, what happens to these fruitless branches? He's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them in the day of judgment and cast into the fire. They are burned. Let's talk about judgment. These are non-believers. These branches, fruitless branches, are clearly talking about non-believers. And what are fruitless branches, you know? And they look like branches. They feel like branches. They're even near the vine, superficially attached to the vine, but they bear no fruit. False disciples of Christ, Judas, keep in mind the context of this teaching to the disciples. Judas just defected. Jesus is trying to explain to them, trying to explain to them what's going on. This is a big deal. Judas journeyed with the 12 for three years. Right? So youth, it's like going on Mexicali for three years and you think you know a person, all of a sudden you don't know them. This is what happened. This is a very traumatic deal for the disciples. There's plenty of Judas branches, unfortunately, in the church across America. There are church buildings everywhere. They look like disciples. They talk like disciples. They even do what disciples do. Judas was with Jesus for three years, superficially connected to him, never a true disciple, never a true disciple, but there's no fruit. He did a lot of external things that looked like fruit, but internally, no love for Christ. This is a scary thing. To me, this is incredibly frightening to hear this. In light of everything I'm talking about, about eternity, this is absolutely terrifying. And I will not be a faithful pastor if I don't bring this up. Because it's clearly in the text. Modern day false disciples may be populating church buildings across America, across the world, own Bibles, be part of Bible studies, hang out with other Christians constantly, enjoy the Christian culture, being around nice, good, wholesome people, professing Christian, but internally no resemblance to Christ. Nothing. No desire for him. No desire for sanctification. So what is the issue here that the vine dresser has to do? He has to cut it off. And in the Japanese vine dresser for the $11,000 grapes, 
He says the most important thing he does, this is the most important thing. He thins the vine. That is the most important thing. And right after the harvest and early spring, because that, those are the timely moments to cut these branches off. And the, a key to it is he doesn't just get a chainsaw and just start cutting off randomly. He studies the vine this whole time to see which ones were producing fruit. He carefully watches. I mean, this is an expensive vine here now. This is, this is the Cadillac of vines here now. He's not going to just start lopping off things. This is a big deal. And so he's looking at this, watching it every day. I don't know if he takes pictures, writes copious notes. I don't know what he does, but he knows which one doesn't produce fruit, and then he cuts those off. That is the most important thing that he does. I was, I was, I was taking my dad to the uh, doctor's appointment this week, and, you know, that's, this has been their expertise in gardening. And I asked my mom, you know, like, uh, you know, why do, why do you have to cut these things? You know, they have rose bushes, and, and if— you know, it's wintertime, so I mean, if you have rose bushes, probably cut down, cut short. And um, she said, well, I mean, you know, it gets really tall. I mean, it gets really tall. It gets kind of ugly, and the, the leaves aren't as great. The flowers, the roses that bloom aren't as good. And I said, how come? Well, she goes, well, it, it creates too much shade for the ones that need light. It just hogs up space, the, the worthless branches. That's one. Two, it, it, it doesn't allow for all the energy, all the nutrients to go to the vines or any. It gets all, it's like a shotgun approach. It gets spread out too th broadly. And thirdly, he said it blocks growth. You know, it's just taking up space. There's no room to grow. So here's a look at an unkept vine that I, that I found here. And you can see this. You can see how this is, once it becomes harvest time, it's just, it's, just it's, it's a mess. You don't know where some of these branches start and end. It's just crazy. You're just going to get a mush of, vine, of branches that can't produce any fruit. If it does produce fruit, it's going to be under, underdeveloped. It's going to be sour. It's going to be worthless. That's worthless. It doesn't even look good, right? So this is where the vine dresser knows what he's doing. He will remove the false branches of the false disciples from the, his son's body. Serious business. Now, on the flip side, for Christians here, what does the vine dresser do for fruitful branches? Point number three, he prunes. The Bible says in verse two, he, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. These are true disciples. This is the ones that the father, if the, if the human vine dresser examines these branches, how much more the father is carefully watching the branches? He, he sees fruit in you. And he will lovingly care for you. We're at our staff retreat in Jan, this couple weeks ago, we, we went out to uh, visit with uh, some elders from Faith Bible Church in Murrieta, and they're talking to us about discipleship. And, and, and it's in Temecula, the place that we stayed, and I was thinking, oh, this is wine country. I can't wait to see these vineyards, you know? But I forgot it was wintertime. So all, the, all the vines are just brown and cut down. And this is a picture that we took of a pruned vine just right by the house, I mean, look at that, compared to the other nappy one that you saw earlier, right? Just, just bare minimum almost. There's some things here and there. But the vine dress is preparing for the harvest in the summertime. He prunes. He prunes. I'm going to go through some Bible verses here. 
Romans 8.28, many of us know that Bible verse, and we may even quote it to many people. I'm going to read that, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who love God, to those who are fruitful, to those who are genuine Christians, not for everybody, but to those who love God, he does good. To those who are called according to his purpose, and not what is his purpose. Keep reading. The vine dresser will do whatever it takes to accomplish verse 29. For those who he foreknew, he knew you before time. He also predestined, he chose you before time. Why? To become conformed to the image of his son. That's the key there. That's the key. And I want to ask a question here. What does this look like? What does this look like, brothers and sisters? How does the, the, the vine dresser prune in real life? I mean, pruning, think about it. You get a sharp blade and you're cutting, you're cutting these vines. What does cutting feel like in real life? It's painful. This is not a pleasant thing. The father loves the son, loves the vine so much. He'll prune us. He'll cut things. He'll remove things that waste our spiritual sap. If, uh, Hebrews 12, I'm just going to read some verses here. Verse 7, Hebrews 12, verse 7, if you want to follow along. This is exactly what the divine father does for us. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God, this is the father, the vine dresser, deals with you as with sons, as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Right? Fathers, you understand what I'm talking about. But if you are without discipline, of which all are, have become partakers, then you are illeg illegitimate children and not sons. You're not real branches if he doesn't discipline you. False. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10 and 11 will give us why he does this. For they disciplined us for a short time, these earthly fathers, as seemed best to them. But he, this is the gardener, this is the divine gardener, he, the, the, the father, the divine dresser, disciplines us for our good. Romans 8, 28, for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, look, what ha look at what happens. Afterwards, this is the harvest, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We become more like Christ. We become more righteous in our behavior, in our thought life, in our acting. What does these, what does these moments look like, the pruning look like? He removes anything that hinders our spiritual growth. Anything that unnecessarily sucks up our interests, our time, and our energy could be good things. It could be relationships. It could, you could get laid off of a job. It could be health things where, where the Lord says, hey, slow down, slow down. It could be good things. This is a hard process here. He loves the church so much that he will not let his church not grow fruit. He loves the church that much. <laughs> Trials, suffering, persecution, not pleasant. You may feel like a sense of loss, not pleasant. John MacArthur talked about this as the trials as the handle of the blade. So what is the tool that the gardener uses to prune us? If trials are to handle and trials are softening our hearts, 
stripping things away, stripping and removing things away so we could receive the word. The tool, the blade is God's word. The knife, Hebrews 4.12, right? For the word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. This word sword is makaira. It's, like, it's not a sword like you think. It's a long sword. It's a short sword. It's a companion sword. It's almost like a dagger. It's a knife. God injects his knife into us. In verse 3, it says, You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. If you believe in the word of Christ, the gospel, you're already clean. But the pruning that takes place, the sanctification that takes place is as we learn more about the word in our, biblical, in our, in our hermeneutics class I just uh, been a part of with David Kim. He said the scriptures, the Bible is the only interpretive lens to rightly understand life's events. Now, how else can you explain helicopters crashing with young people in it? Where are you going to go to when people ask you that? Where do you, how do you process this out for yourself when you process that? How do you process my testimony of being on that plane? Is it, oh, that's just bad luck? Oh, lucky that you made it out there? I mean, no, God had it planned. And there was a purpose in it for me. I mean, it gave me a, it shattered some things that if my vision was a little bit cloudy on some things, he made it a lot clearer. Listen, when things, when hard things in life happen, when the handle hits us, all right, when the handle hits us, the word informs us, it corrects us, it convicts us, man, I'm, I'm not responding accurately. We need to get fed the word. And we've been doing and growing and praying for a, a ministry called biblical counseling in our, in our church. Pastor Dan Christian is heading it up, and we met a couple weeks ago. And one of the things that we're talking about, what is biblical counseling? Biblical counseling is ministering the word in response to sin and suffering. When the handle of life hits you, are you there to come along your brother and sister to minister the word accurately? Now, ministering the word doesn't mean you just throw a bunch of words or throw a bunch of blades at the, the plant. That means you carefully get in there. You, the, the vine dresser carefully gets in there and cuts out these sucker branches from the uh, fruitful roots. You need to know the truth in order to have a proper worldview. How do you help someone have, in response to sin and suffering if they don't have a proper worldview taught through the Bible? It's like you're a surgeon. You know, it's a surgeon is very careful. They got arthroscopic knee surgery with a bunch of holes in there. All right, and the surgeon uh, takes uh, and fixes knees and shoulders and labrums, those sort of things. The surgeon has to carefully do his surgery. We need to be careful in how we minister the word to one another because it, it hurts. We need to know when to apply it, where to apply it, how to apply it. Maybe wait till next time so for, for more healing to take place or just get it done right then and there. Biblical counseling. This is what we're praying for. This is where a group of people are interested in learning how to count, minister the word to one another. If you're interested, let's talk to Pastor Dan. But it's the word. Life hits us and it's the word that heals us. It's the word that makes us stronger after we deal with the, 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 the handle of, the, of, of, of pruning. Now, I want to ask this question. My brothers and sisters here, pray about this. Journal this. Get, get out your pen and start writing this down. Pray. 
Ask God and just think about it. Where do you need to individually prune in order to grow in Christ? Because let me just say this much. It's it's better to self-correct. I think it's easier. I say this as a friend, and I think this is gentle and loving. It's easier to self-correct and then for the Father to come and correct you. It's a lot easier for my little guys here to course correct before Papa gets home, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> right? We understand this. It's better. So ask, seek the Lord. And, and Lord, where am I captivated by? Obviously, if it's sin, you need to get rid of it. But if it's even good things, like where am I misprioritizing my life? Where am I out of whack? Where am I putting family too much over Christ and the church? Where am I like uh, too interested in social media? Where am I overly interested in an Xbox or my job or my career? These are good things, brothers and sisters, and let's do these things well, but these things could hinder us. That's one. And two, we love Evergreen SGV. This is the church family that we're part of. Pray about what needs to be pruned from our church. What ministries are not producing disciples? What ministries are not about producing disciples? These are good things. These are not bad things, but which things are we in, in, investing energy, time, money, human resources, emphasis, and it's producing branches without producing disciples? This is what we're about. The central theme of our church is about discipleship. We'll go into that more, but I just want to give you a quick preview of that. Pray about those individually, but corporately as a church, what do we need to prune? Okay, finishing up here. Um, here's a picture here of a, of a fruitful branch. Look at all those grapes, right? I don't think they're $11,000, but still good. But look at, the, look at how girthy that, that vine is. How should, what is our response in the face of pruning, in the face of uh, hard times, difficulties? What, where should our focus be? Just like the title of the sermon says, we need to be abiding in Christ. We need to be remaining in Christ. We need to stay focused on Christ. We need to stay connected to Christ. We need to persevere with Christ in Christ. That's our, that's our identity. Without that connection, there are no grapes. You can hang grapes, go to the market, Costco, and hang grapes onto the, to a vine or a branch, but that's not the fruit. You could do good works. You could do good things. But that's not spiritual fruit. Verse 4. Let's finish up. Abide in me and I in you. This is an imperative command. God is saying, Jesus is saying, you need to remain with me, stay with me, reside with me, persist with me, be faithful to me. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. You need to do this, disciples. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine. And you are the branches. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is saying, it's so personal to me. You're part of me. You're connected to me. He who abides or remains in me, connects with me, I in him. It's, 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 we're in unity. You're in unison. You are oneness with our Lord. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, the vine, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing that's pleasing to the Lord, to the vine dresser, to the Father. 
This is where it's at. Perhaps we're going through a, a pruning process right now, individually. I just want to encourage us, stay focused on Christ. And I was trying to do too much this week, so this became like a, a, a kind of almost a two-part message. Next week, we're gonna, you may be asking me, see, one of the things that convicted me is I could exhort maybe and, and, and like, yeah, man, I want to abide in Christ. Okay, pastor, how do I do it? Well, I don't want to gloss over that, okay? So this is probably the key point, right? How do I actually do this? How does this look like? Next week, we're going to look about how to abide in the vine. All right, we'll, we'll go through similar verses, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep extending it down. We'll keep mar faithfully marching down to John 15. But my big exhortation is this. In that great day for you and me, do you stand before the judge with great confidence? Because on this side of eternity, yeah, not perfect fruit, but I got fruit. God made fruit in me. You need to know this. I need to know this. Amen? Now, let's pray and, and prepare our hearts for communion here. And we get to worship our Lord in this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you for that you are so good. Jesus, you are incredible. You are the true vine. Thank you, Lord, that you attached us to you through your death on the cross where your body was broken and through your blood was shed. Thank you for this opportunity to preach on this, Lord. I thank you for the privilege. Wow, incredible. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of uh, preaching about this Trinitarian love relationship that's provided through the gospel. So, Father, I pray we come to the communion table uh, with a spirit of oneness, spirit of unity. Lord, please continue to move our church family where we completely identify in the true vine. And we jettison, we remove, detach ourselves from any old vines that we may have. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.